Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Today, our guest is Stephen Hill, an accomplished executive in various facets. He was the president of programming at BET, where he worked with extremely talented and smart colleagues as he created monumental moments that moved culture. From our Prince tribute through Michael Jackson and James Brown appearing on stage together, from Beyonce splashing through President Obama singing, uh, College Hill through Real Husbands of Hollywood, from the groundbreaking 106 and Park through the legendary BET Awards shows. I was so proud to know that Stephen Hill was the one that put all these things together. It is just phenomenal. Steve, welcome to Reimagining Black Relations podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So Stephen, I've said everything that I thought I knew about you. Do you mind formally introducing yourself? I know I only scratched the surface. So can you tell us a little bit more so we can know the man behind the title? I am, uh, most importantly, I am Wanda and Caesar's son and Gary's brother, Charlie and Luca's uncle, and Jaden is my faithful ward. Uh, the people in my life uh, who are the most important and mean more than any other accomplishment. I'm wa- originally from Washington, D.C., and uh, have been a music fanatic, fan, lover of music for a long time. And I, gave, I was very fortunate to be able to tie the thing that I loved uh, throughout my entire life to to the business and then in turn have that influence culture or at least be a part of culture for such a long period of time and the responsibility that i and my team felt doing that was great and we never took we never took it for granted i love traveling i love experiences i love being on the beach very few things in this world are better than a good laugh and a great conversation all right thank you so much for sharing that so your background is pretty impressive uh, Stephen. tell us where were you born and where did you grow up my birthday is actually in, in a couple of weeks. Grew up in Washington D.C. My mother uh, was a was a mixture of a piano teacher and stay-at-home mother, and my dad worked at the Census Bureau for the entirety of my life. And my brother is just one of the greatest people in the world. So I had a fantastic home life. That, that the fact that it was it was structured in such a way that my brother and I became and have remained best friends uh, for the entirety of our lives, and that education was always paramount in the household. We were never in abject poverty by any stretch of the imagination, but it wasn't always, it wasn't flowing. They never had Gary or I doubt that we were going to go to college, that we could get our education wherever we wanted to, and that they would do whatever they had to to make that happen. When I look back on it, it's astonishing to have that as an, as an assumption, right? You don't, there was no question about, will you be able to go to higher education? It was like, you got to do the work to get there. Oh, that's amazing. I've spoken with uh, quite a number of uh, Black executives, and many of them, uh, their background was small, very humble. I'm trying to understand whether yours was classified as humble beginning or your parents are more middle class. Oh, middle class. It was middle class. Always lived in a home 
never was concerned. If there was concern about money, it was kept away from us. My mother jokes that the only real thing is that we could only have one piece of bacon. Like when I was eight or nine years old, that was the thing to have one piece of bacon. But my dad had a government job from the day I was born through the day, <laughs> through the day that he died. So there was never that concern. And again, uh, when it came to, ed- to education, we were in the DC public schools. I was in there for three years and then went, started going to private schools um, after that. And my brother was in for one year and then went to private school. That's very interesting. And you're a very unique person, I must say. So you started going through private school. Were you ever in a mixed school setting in terms of diversity? Yeah, but I was the diversity. Like I was the, <laughs> I was the diversity. There was N. Beers Elementary School, which is where I was in D.C. It was literally, call it 97% black, right? And, and the rest were white and a, a few Asian students. Um, then I went to Potomac School in McLean, Virginia, and it was, it was flipped around. I mean, it's, it's easily uh, easily 90%, uh, 90% white school. And so there was, you know, in fourth grade, there was uh, one, two, three, four of us in a, in a class of a little less than 80, 60 or so. Very interesting. Okay, so did your parents, did they teach you how to interact with authorities, such as police officers and the likes? And if they did, what did they even say? So no, but I also attribute that to, that was a different type of policing, especially where I was. Like one of the things I remember, and I've talked about this recently because I think it's what we need to get back to. I was fortunate enough that I remember very well in my first grade and second and third grade in elementary school, there was a, there was a guy who came in in a police, op, police uniform and he would sing, I'm Officer Friendly, the friendly officer. I'm Officer Friendly, the friendly officer. And his whole thing was like, when you see me, come up, shake my hand. Like, let's talk. And so I was in my interaction with police when I was very young because of the way the D.C. uh, policing system was set up was one of like, he's my guy, like the policeman on my block is my guy. Right. So that was ingrained in my head very, very early. I remember seeing I forget. I remember it was a black officer. I do remember that. I remember seeing him when he was on his beat outside of school. And I like ran up to him because like to me, he was like a celebrity. He was like a star. And so my thoughts of how policing ran, and I was fortunate to be in an area where it wasn't bad in, in Southeast DC uh, at, that, at that time. And this is pre-crack. Pre-crack and post-crack are two very, very, very different things. Um, and so you asked me about my, So mine was, I didn't have to have that conversation because of the way the police ran then and they they knew to keep me out of things. And so they, they also knew that I wasn't the kind who was going to be anywhere near trouble. Like that's the kind of guy that I was. And that's kind of what my brother was. Different relationships had to be had with, with police officers. As crack decimated the neighborhood, police felt as police tactics got rougher and rougher. But in mine, and I'm talking late 60s, early 70s, it was a very different thing. And in Southeast D.C., there were plenty of black police officers. It was not a race thing as I remember it when I was growing up as a kid. Thank you for sharing that. That's a very different perspective from some of the narratives we've been hearing. And I'm really pleased to hear that because we can't stereotype in general and just say everything is just this shape. So you really bring in a different perspective to this dialogue we've been having and some of the narratives we've been hearing. Now, did you have to have a conversation with your children? I'm assuming you have children, of course. And I did. I had a conversation with my son. I had a conversation with my son who is 
So he is in a school that is very diverse. And one of the things that kids do now is use race as the center of humor, right? They use race, right? So in my days, it was the Pollock jokes, right? It was ethnicity, right? And Pollocks were dumb, right? That was the, that was the thing. And Archie Bunker did that on All the Family uh, with Mike Stivitt, right? But now it is about, now it's about ethnicity and Hispanic and black. And so I always want to let the, the youngsters have, like they're going to discover how to deal with things. But I do want to make sure that he's very careful in how he approaches it, who he talks about it with and how there really are their friends. But people, there is a different race. You know, you're going to encounter racial prejudice at some point in time. So be prepared for it. So what did he need to do to be prepared for it, though? You know, I think part of it is being aware. And he's, and, he, and it, it, you know, candidly, our conversation was tough. He said, oh, no, no, these are my friends. They don't mean anything by it. They don't mean anything by it. I'm like, I want to believe that, but understand that if you say that around their parents, around the parents, there's going to be a different perspective, right? And so it's really just making them aware of it. Uh, we've had lots of conversations about police interaction. Like if you're pulled over police, your job is to make it home alive. Your job is not to contest it, take whatever ticket. It doesn't matter. Your job is to get home alive. Full stop. Don't worry about anything else. You will never be in trouble if you get pulled over police and make it home alive. Right. So that's the current narrative. Now, why did you switch from what you heard from your parents? Because there's so much. You're never going to hear about all the good experiences, right? You're never going to hear about the good experiences. And so I thoroughly believe that there are plenty of positive experiences that people have, the interactions have. But when they go bad, they make the news. And when they make the news, it makes it seem like the, like the, the abundance of interactions are horrible interactions. I don't necessarily believe that's the case, but I believe you, should, you have to prepare for the worst, right? I think that what, back when I was growing up, the worst was less fathomable than it is now, right? That, and I think that's the difference between how my parents went with it and the way I'm, the way I'm doing it. It's much less fathomable that, you know, you're going to get caught up in police, you're going to caught up, caught up in police activity just by walking down the street. And so that's what made me, I just, just, just to prepare for what could happen because he's seeing it on the news, because he's seeing it on the news, on the blogs and online at all times. In most cases, if you give respect, you will get respect back. Now, some people will want it to be uh, deference. Some people want it to be treat them like they are superior. Your job is to get home. If treating the officer like he or she is a superior is what's going to get you home, then do that. Don't worry about your pride. <laughs> There's a scene in Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction is one of my favorite movies, where Ring Raymond said, that's going to be pride messing with you. I'm going to use other words. You know, forget pride. Your job is to get home. Absolutely. Let me switch the question a little bit. What was your first exposure to racism? Prejudice, I get. Racism is tougher because racism, when I was in junior high school, I dated a, a white girl and the parents I had a challenge with the fact that I was black. That's prejudice. That didn't prevent me from any financial gain or anything. So I, I attended to, to what's prejudice, what's racism. When I was 12 years old, there was this thing called Children's International Summer Villages, CISV. And the, the idea was that there was different, there's different, these villages, Denmark, France, London, Washington, and, and different places in the U.S. And the idea is there'd be international travel, right? And so one summer, the group from, say, Denmark would come to the U.S. and D.C. and stay with families there. And then the next summer, it would be returned, right? And so 
we had a CISV in Washington, D.C. And to make a longer story short, there was another one in France we were supposed to interact with. And then once they saw that we were kind of all black folks, they were like, yeah, no, we don't. No, we're good. We're not going to. We're not going to. At least that's how it was explained to me by my mom. They thought when they came to D.C., they were going to have all these, you know, diplomats and dignitaries. And it turned out to be like these, you know, these cool black kids. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't want to do that. So that prevented that really prevented me from going from from an achievement or an opportunity. Right. So that to me is racism. So I think that was the, that was the first time. So they were actually not from the United States. That's interesting. So within the United States, did you ever experience any beyond that? The reason I'm having a hard time with this only is because having worked a lot of times in black owned media, I'm not going to find racism in black owned media. media. Our salespeople are as they try to go out and sell our product and they say, well, you're, you know, your dollar is less, less than the 35 year old white male dollar. But myself personally, racism that has really affected any kind of opportunity or movement, there hasn't been much of that. Part of it is, look, my first job in entertainment was a Black-owned company. When I went to BT, it was a Black-owned company. And there were only a few years in between there that weren't Black-owned companies. And that's one of the things about starting your own and supporting your own is that when you start your own and support your own, the racism you run into is much less than if you're doing it elsewhere. And I would argue that BET and WILD when it was in Boston played with every other entity that was in that space and did extremely well. So. That's part, that's part of the reason. Yeah, and it actually makes sense. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question on that later, but I want to just quickly ask you this, which is something I've heard, that Black men often intimidate other racial groups. Do you think this is true? And by the way, how tall are you? Oh, I'm 6'7". Okay. So, you can't tell? You can't tell? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> sky. I'm 6'7". <six> <laughs> Crazy. Oh, oh, I hit my head, my head on. No, I'm like, I'm five, nine and a half on a good day. <laughs> on, a good, on a good day, I'm five, nine and a half. Okay. Okay. So, but tell me though, because I've heard it so many times that black men intimidate other racial groups. But that's a hard one. Like, I think everybody walks into to a situation with preconceived notions. Everybody, no matter what situation you walk into, right? I walked into this. I saw you. And I walked in with a preconceived notion just by looking at you when you came on. Ah, this is an educated woman, very classy, right? Right? So you walk in before any kind of communication happens, there's nonverbal cues. So if you are, take the extreme, if you're in the Midwest, in the middle of Ohio, and you don't have many interactions with black people, but you, all you see it is on television or in movies, you're going to walk in with a certain preconceived notion. And sometimes, that may be a threatening one, depending on what you watch, right? If you grew up post Cliff Huxtable, it may be a little different than if you, if you got your cues pre Cliff Huxtable. And so that being said, I've been in situations where people have been threatened by me, but once kind of once the communication starts, that's not the case. I've been in situations in, in white owned businesses where there are people who think, you know, you just got there because they need to hire somebody black. Right. Right. And so again, but that's the kind of thing, like, that's your problem. That's not my problem. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't take that in. I don't take any of that energy in. I feel bad for you for feeling that way. You've got to live your life, but I'm here. I'm going to do the best job. And if you want to do it together, we can. And if you don't, I'll do it around you. So I do believe that because of preconceived emotions, people, people can be threatened. 
You also have to realize that your the human body is made up to protect yourself. Your whole being is to save yourself and make others, right? Every one of your the the best feeling that you know, a human body can have is in the process of making another human. That's so we keep making humans, right? You still feel when people bond your back because you've got to learn how to fight or flight, right? And so while I think even while there's that especially post-Cliff Huxtable. There's a variety and multidimensional presentations of what you with African-American males. But your body sometimes takes up the worst possible thing because you can live through everything else. But if you encounter the worst thing, you've got to make an action to get away so it doesn't harm you, right? So you can have eight really, really good ones. And that's fine. That's fine. You, your body registers, that's perfectly fine. I don't, I don't have to worry about them. Your body's always worried about what has to worry about what's going to try to kill it or eat it, right? We still have that from when we, from millions of years ago, are they going to try to kill me or eat me? And so when you have, and this is just not with black men, I want to be very clear. This is just about, um, this is more about fear and how fear informs how we think about people and how forms you think about threats, things we can, we can perceive as a threat. Not that we necessarily should, but we can. So if you're, look, I know if I'm walking down the street and I feel somebody walking close behind me, it could be Mother Teresa. I'm still going to be worried because is this a possible harm? And I think that informs a lot of people when they think about, especially black male images, because of their parental upbringing, because of some things on media, they're like, oh my gosh, do I have to worry about this? especially if you don't have friends directly in your life. Yes, that's that's an important point because those helps to build who you are and the confidence level about the different racial groups. So your journey as an executive obviously was slightly different from many of the other executives I've actually interviewed. They mostly work in a white, top-heavy organizations. Now, yours was black, top-heavy at BET. How would you have adapted within a white, top-heavy organization if, if that's where you find yourself? What do you think you would have had to do differently to be able to adapt? Gone golfing. <laughs> no, look, what I'm really confident is that at BET, I work with some of the best professionals in the business, not some of the best black professionals in the business. They were the best professionals in the business. So, and I don't think that everything revolves around race, right? They were just, we, we had the best sales guy in the business, one of the, one of the best CFOs, amazing marketing. They, they were just great executives. Do I think there's, a, there's some culture differences? Yes, but it's not as dire that I have to adapt my whole being, number one. Number two, that's also because from third grade on, I was, I was very much in, in diverse environments through junior high school, high school, college after that. So I understand some of the differences in cultures. There's a black slap, there's a back slapping, there's a hanging out a certain way. There's a, there's, there is a bit of code, code switching, ways of getting points across that are different, but none is better than the other. There's just, as with any kind of, this is a different dynamic. So when you said code shifting, I just knew what that is about a few weeks ago. One of my guests spoke on code shifting and I said, what's that? So he explained it to me. So I know what that means now. Yes. So thank you for bringing sure, that sure. up again. It's great <laughs> to, to hear it. Now, but Stephen, you would know though that many, we don't need to make, name any, but many organizations, the executives, they say, well, 
We simply can't find qualified Black people. But you're telling us that it's the opposite at BET. How did you find them? And I'm wondering, why is it that other mainstream companies are not able to find them? What I'm hoping recent um, events are going to change is that it's all about networking, right? If your network doesn't involve Black people, you're going to say you can't find Black people. It doesn't mean they don't exist. It means they're not in your network. And right, what I'm really encouraged by is people at least understanding that they've got to expand their networks, right? And that the way to find these is to tap into other networks. And there are Black organizations stepping up to help these organizations find these people, right? There's a little, whole bunch of cottage industries and people I know who are like, okay, well, I'm going to, you, you need Black board members. I know people who can be Black board members, so you're going to pay me a fee. So I think it, it's a matter, you know, it's been separate, kind of separate for so long. I think people, when they say that, they just don't know the network. And there's plenty, you know, it wasn't tough for us to find amazingly qualified people at BET because we knew where the people were. Absolutely. Networking. I like that. I want to switch gears. Did you watch the video of George Floyd? And if you did, what, what crossed your mind when you saw it? I did not watch it. It was too much for me to watch as a mother. So I watched the entire thing, and I'm going to be very honest. In the moment, in that moment when I watched it, I knew that it was going to be compared to the video of Colin Kaepernick and that the knee was going to be such a symbol that we would carry through through for a long time, right? And that people could draw directly, and, and, and it happened almost immediately, like, Colin Kaepernick took a knee because of this knee, right? To, to try to avoid this knee, Colin Kaepernick took his knee. And so the fact that the knees, because in, in a way, I'm, I just try to find things that link. And as, an, and as someone as a, you know, an, uh, a, a, a creative, creative person, I thought that's going to help bring it home. And to me, it really did. I had no idea that there did this much movement behind it. But once it started, I must admit, I realized that thanks to social media, thanks to the intensity, thanks to people like Tamika Mallory, that this was not going to go anywhere, that this was going to, out of this, out of this horrible tragedy, was going to be real change. The George Floyd tragedy is such a tragedy. I hope that it's not in vain, right? And it looks, it looks so far like it's not in vain. Yeah, and that's why we're having this conversation. That was what actually prompted it. So I think you're absolutely right. We will keep speaking on this subject mm -hmm. until we get to where we need to be. And I think yeah. it's going to be one that everyone needs to be engaged on. And I'm pleased to say white, black, and brown, they all engage, at least many. We've had a few uh, speakers that are of different racial groups that they really engage on this subject. They want to know what to do. Now, mm. have you ever been afraid due to the color of your skin? Wow, good question. Yes. Ironically, it was not in the U.S., but yes, I was in Ireland. There was a rowdy bunch of folks. I thought they were going to come at me. Wow. What happened? What was going on? Uh, we were, it was a Radiohead concert. Uh, words were said, and I just let them go. And, but, you know, it, the, the, the uh, combatants got uh, a bit drunker. It got drunker and drunker. Uh, but luckily... Other people of the same ilk saw what was happening and they were like, look, we'll walk you out. We know the area. We'll be fine. So while we had, there were three people over here who were trying to cause trouble, there was also three people who I did not know 
who saw what was happening and said, yeah, yeah, no, we, we, we got you. Mm-hmm. So that's the only time I can really think of that I was afraid of, afraid because of my, because of my color. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In your circle, your circle seven, do you have a circle of all racial groups or is it mostly black people that are in your circle of influence? So mostly black, but on the closer end, it's really mixed. Like uh, one of my three closest friends in the world is an awesome white woman. My close circle is, is diverse, but my overall circle is, is probably more black. Mm-hmm. What are they saying about what's going on, especially those that are non-blacks? I am fortunately surrounded by people who want to know what they can do to help. Right? I, uh, one of my friends has access to a lot of money. And when it first started, he's, he, he said, look, I'm not sure I have time when I do have money. Point me in the right direction of where I can send this money to have it, make, have it work. And I appreciated his candor. Like, I, I'm, like I'm not going to be on the front line. Like, I can't. Like, I can't. Not my time, not my family. But where can I help? And so they want to make sure that they are on the right side of history. I will share this with you. My friends, one of the best conversations I had, and I'll try to make it concise. My white woman friend's husband, when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, you know, I can never be for him because he disrespects country and flag. He's a military guy. Like I'm in the military and that, that means so much. People have died for this flag. And so we had a conversation. Well, that's how it got spun. It wasn't about that. It was about police brutality. And so once I broke it down to him and said, he's using his white to peacefully protest. Here's someone who's completely military down to the, who's like, oh, I get it now. And this was pre-George Floyd. And he was one of the first calls I got after George Floyd. And he said, I'm so glad we had that conversation that time. This, I, I like, I understood it then. And this, now I really, I can consume it. And so and those are the kind of conversations, you know, because those are kind of, if, if I'm going to have, if I'm going to have those friends, those are the kind of friends I'm going to have that want to have those conversations. That's awesome because we have to start. It's almost like grassroots. And I always tell people that we want a lot of change from top down. We want a lot of changes within our organizations. We want a lot of changes in our government, in our countries, but countries, companies, they don't exist in a vacuum. They are made up of people. So the changes need to take place from individuals, right? Individuals that rises to that level yeah. of the leader in, in, of the free world, the leader of a state, the leader in a company. So it's all those one-on-ones that we're having with them. And as we're able to help them understand what's going on, when they get to that level, or if they have access to those level, then they'll be speaking what we're expecting from them. So mm-hmm. it is people that drive those changes that we're looking for. It's not just an organization operating uh, in a vacuum. People are not part of it. It's just this thing up there that is doing something, or the government up there that's doing something. It is people makes those decisions. They are people that are making those decisions. And the people who are in the government almost 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 to a person are voted in and i am tired i will tell you this i am tired of of i'm gonna call it out african-americans i don't i don't mind saying this because michelle obama said her biggest disappointment was that in 2016 people did not get up off their butts and go to the polls and vote right and so people talk about the government doing this government this but you don't vote i don't want to hear you if you have a choice between going out marching and going out and voting Go vote. I mean, march to the polls if you can, 
But if in the in the weird world you can only march or vote, vote is going to make more change in a block than anything else. You know, so number one, number two, to go back to about talking to friends, I have a lot of friends who are like, you know, I'm tired. I don't want to be. I don't want to be the black friend who explains everything, and I understand that because it gets tiring. But I also want to make sure that people who want to know and want to be better have access to people they feel comfortable with having to have the conversation, right? Because we can't expect we can't expect white people to know better without our input, right? They they can't figure it out on their own. So when people say like, "Oh, I'm tired. I don't. I got I, my approach is a little different. Like, ask me anything." Ignorance to me is not a negative thing. It takes a negative connotation, but ignorance just means that you don't know. If you don't mind, can I, can I use Drew, Drew Brees as an example to me? I don't know if you're familiar with Drew, Drew Brees, is the quarterback from New Orleans, who in an interview right after George Floyd said, I can never stand for anybody kneeling during the, uh, like my friend, much like my friend, it's about country, it's about flag, so I can't take anybody kneeling. His teammates kind of checked him and said, hey, it's not about country and flag. It's about black people getting beat up by police, right? And Drew Brees has been a staple in the New Orleans community for a while. People that know him know that he's, he's really down with the community. So they were surprised when he made this statement. When he got checked by his teammate, he came out with an apology. Now, a lot of people, including lots of friends of mine, thought that was just, oh, he had to do that. So that's something he had to do. So he didn't want to do it, but he had to do it. I'm like, okay. The next day, President Trump tweeted out, like, I like Drew Brees as a baseball, as a, as a football player, but he never should have apologized. Drew Brees could have just let it be done at that. But Drew Brees made a decision to say, no, Mr. President, you're wrong. I thought the way you did, and then I listened to people. And he laid it out. Drew Brees laid it out. This is how it's about police brutality. It's about justice. That's what it's about. It's not about flagging country. Mr. President, you're wrong. Now, despite what you may think about Trump, he's the president of the United States. And Drew Brees had a communication and a relationship with the president of the United States. So Drew's, Drew Brees putting out that apology, I'm sorry, is one thing. But the fact that he chose to speak truth to power won him for me. And so I say that to say when someone's ignorant or doesn't know, and then they learn, all I care about is what they do after they learn. So if you're ignorant, you learn, and then you take that to speak truth to power like Drew Brees is, you are an ally, right? You possibly gave yourself a liability to make our position stronger. If you're ignorant, you learn, and you go back to doing ignorant things, I'm judging you then as well. But you have to allow people the space to fail and then assess what are the, what's their intention? Like, what's their, what's their intention? What are they going to be after they learn? How are they going to move? And so I think that's, that's, a, that's, that's crucial, crucial, crucial as we communicate, as we, as we relate to each other. Thank you, Steve, for sharing that. That was a really great example of being able to uh, walk the talk. Now, if you have to speak to a predominantly white audience, okay? So pretend you are on a global platform. And you need to speak to a predominantly white audience about what needs to happen now in light of everything that's been going on. What would you tell them directly? Do you mind addressing them? First of all, I, I want to know what kind of what type of crowd I'm talking to. Are they forced to be in this meeting or are they chosen to be in this meeting? That's the, that's the most important thing. 
I think you should speak to both because we have listeners that cover all spectrum. Some are listening because they want to know, they really have interest, and some are just like, they stumble across it, right? They have no interest, they just stumble across it. So just speak to a diverse group of a white audience from any angle. So then I have to, then it has to be the lowest common denominator, right? Oh, I forget what her name is. Um, you know, who here in the audience wants to be, a, would like to shade places and be a black American? Right? And then when nobody stands up, you don't want to be a black American because you know they're treated badly. But you're okay with black Americans being treated badly. Right? So if you're not okay, let's talk about how we can make things equal. And I hate when people say, like, you got to make it equal for the black person. No, no, no. You make it equal for everybody. Right? The point is, like, so that everybody is equal. Chris Rocks has a great, has a great one where he says, like, you know, it's not getting better for the blacks. It's just that white people are becoming less crazy or less bananas in the way they approach things, right? The, the crazy thing is Jim Crow. The crazy thing is thinking that you're better than anybody else because of your skin color. They're not getting better for blacks, just white folks are less crazy. And then I would tell them to read White Fragility. And I'd really tell them to read White Fragility with an open mind and then really have as, much, as many conversations with, if you have black friends, if you have black friends who you can approach and say, I'm willing to, to make myself vulnerable to you as long as you're willing to have a, a, a conversation that doesn't make me feel bad about me trying to learn, right? Don't make me feel bad about trying to learn. I think that's very important. And ask the questions that, that, that you want to know, how, how best to handle, how best to deal with it. And, but most of all, do not make it about you. Don't make it about you. Bill Burr, I'm, Saturday Night Live is my favorite show of all time. And Bill Burr was on this past week talking about it, how it took like eight seconds for white women to make the woke experience about them and how how they, how, you know, white women's tears and, oh my God, it's so horrible. It's so sad. Come, come console me. Come console me because I feel so bad about how everything is going on. And of course, now he's getting flack for it, but it was brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. So if we need to flip the stage to a predominantly black audience, what would you be telling them now? Vote, vote, vote. Vote is the best thing you can do. Vote and please have conversations with as many white friends as you possibly can. Right. I, I'm fine doing things at micro level. Right. I, I believe some some of the best work is done at the micro level because you never know who that person you're going to influence is going to influence who that person is going to influence going down the line. So number one is vote. If you're in this, if we're in this thing and you're not voting, then I don't want to hear you complain about anything. I don't. I don't. Right. Ferguson. Ferguson is a perfect example of Mike, Mike Brown, who and they did not bring charges. The D.A. did not bring charges. Well, they got together, they voted in block, and they decided, like, yeah, that's not going to work out. And so the DA, who had had that position for 27 years, got voted out, got voted out because people decided, okay, we're going to put our voting power together like we never have before. And it is crucial. I know you think you're only one person, one vote. The 537 people decided the, the election in 2000, right? 537 people who were in Florida, 70,000 people in different districts change the election. That's less than a football, one football stadium, right? So your vote counts. And if you talk about other folks and get, you know, 10 people to know 10 people to know 10 people, that adds up fast. So I know it sounds vote, 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 vote and talk. Okay. Vote first, then do other things, right? Vote and talk. <laughs> All right. I love it. Absolutely. You know, Steve, I just want to thank you for sharing from your heart. 
I hope you'll come back again. And I'm praying the change will be in a lifetime. I mean, there's just so many we're talking about. I hope we'll be able to witness it. And truly, truly, I hope you will come back again, hopefully after November, right? After November, we'll be having a celebration. I'll have part, you know, party favors and balloons and hats because I do believe this is about to come to an end. I do, I do believe it. I'm going to do my part. I tell you that much. Absolutely. And I promise to do the same as well. Thank you, Steve. Great. Thank you very much. Have a great day. It's a great. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you, Steve. I hope you appreciate the perspectives from Steve. And I truly value his commitment to moving the course of this human endeavor forward. So what are the critical points? If you're struggling to find quality Black candidates for your organization, you suggested that you expand your network. LinkedIn is a great platform. You may also connect with Black organizations. I've used LinkedIn several times and it really does work. He also recommended reading White Fragility, but with an open mind. It's a very powerful book that I suggest everyone should read, Black, Brown, or White. Thirdly, he wants you to engage in conversations with other racial groups to understand their perspectives on the current issues. And finally, for Blacks, most importantly, and even everybody, he only has one proposition, and that is to vote. Vote first, then talk or march. He believes voting is the game changer. So to everyone, victims, allies, and even foes, please vote. We only have two weeks to the election. Please vote if you are in the United States. And if you are outside, please pray. I want to use this opportunity to thank all of you that attended the Global Black Affairs Conference on October 12th. The feedback was remarkable. The recording, answers to your questions, and some of the reviews are all on the website at yourblackmatters.com. If you are new to the podcast, you can listen to the prior episode from the same website, yourblackmatters.com. I will also like to hear from you. You can email me at Francesca at yourblackmatters.com. Francesca is spelled as F-R-A-N-C-E-S-C-A at yourblackmatters.com. Thank you for your support. And don't forget to spread the good news. Steve, thank you for your contribution to the history we're making. I'm excited to be a part of it. God bless you and your family. To all our listeners, may God bless you as well. And may the Lord bless the United States of America. See you next time.